0: Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, full-time police detective and acclaimed international bestselling author Bernard Schaefer steps into the interrogation room just to clear a few things up about his writing and his latest release. Given the disparity in our interrogation experience, I'm going to try to stay on the offense as long as I can. (laughs) Bernard published multiple works as a prolific indie author in a variety of genres, which has included the titles Way of the Warrior, Superbia, Whitechapel, The Final Stand of Sherlock Holmes, The Manifesto of Independent Writing and Publishing. More importantly, he's the father of two children and still works as a full-time police detective in southeastern PA. Bernard's most recent novels are the Santero and Rain Thriller series from Kensington Publications, which includes last year's The Thief of All Light and An Unsettled Grave, which released just about two weeks ago. The series' third installment, entitled Blood Angel, is due out in 2020. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Bernard. Thanks so much for uh, coming. It's always great to
1: talk to another cop, man. Thank you for having me, Gavin. I really appreciate it.
0: Now, in prepping for this interview, I went digging around the interwebs for open source data and a look at some of your previous works. Uh, Did you know that there is one used copy of your manifesto for independent writing on Amazon for $870?
1: (laughs) It's not worth it, so don't (laughs) buy it.
0: (laughs) If you have a stockpile of those, man, now is the time to, to strike. The iron and the demand are hot.
1: Yeah, what happens is when you when you publish uh, independently and you have the option whether or not you want to get rid of titles or or change them or modify them, um, that was one of the ones that that just didn't uh, really hold up to the standard that I had set for myself uh, as time went on. So I removed the title, and uh, because it's the internet, things are still out there, mm-hmm. and you know I guess someone has a copy somewhere and they consider it a collector's item, but I tr- trust me, it is not worth eight hundred dollars. <laughs> Don't buy it. For that.
0: Yeah, there's got to be some unbelievable gems in there, like actual <laughs> hidden gems. Yeah, now, I'm I'm reading An Unsettled Grave now, and I really appreciate the time and the craft that you've obviously put into this book, man. For, for readers who are new to you and your writing, what do you want them to know about An Unsettled Grave?
1: Uh, you know, the thing that I want people to know the most about me lately is I'm not just a, a cop that decided one day to write a book. Uh, I've been a writer long before. Uh, I ever became a police officer. I'll be a writer long after I'm done being a police officer. I feel like I get lumped in a lot of times with, you know, the cop that everybody knows who says, you know what, I'm going to write my story. I'm going to, I'm going to tell what it's like on the mean streets. And that's not me. I'm I'm a novelist. I write fiction. Um, You know, the, the quote that I've been using is something along the lines of, you know, I don't use my writing to tell humanity what police work really is. I use police work to tell my writing what humanity really is. Um, and I hope that that carries over in everything that I do.
0: Yeah. That's a really big difference, right? Like most guys that uh, are on the job and, and think that they're going to pen this, you know, fantastic uh, autobiography, right. Is right. It's, it's the
1: reverse of that. Yeah. That's not me that I, I didn't, I'm not a police apologist. I don't have a soapbox. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not here to tell people what we really go through. It has nothing to do with that. I, I write fiction. Um, it is informed by my career, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's authentic because of what I do for, uh, in my day job. You know, I like to tell people that you know, I've been a cop for 20 years now, and it, it just happens to be the longest research project in history for writing. Yes. Now, this particular book, An Unsell of the Grave, touches
0: on a number of women's issues. And as a man raised primarily by a mostly single mom. That really struck a chord with
1: me. Yeah, what what inspired this story and all the threads that you've woven through it? Well, you know, when I was in the midst of writing it, the whole Me Too movement was uh, taking shape, um, and and it seemed like people were finally talking about some of the issues that you know any criminal investigator uh, knows very well. Unfortunately, yes. you know, um, how many how many female victims have we all dealt with? Uh, from, you know, little, little kids to Mm -hmm. older elderly people, uh, you know, who have to come into the station and unburden themselves of like the worst thing that's ever happened to them and something humiliating and then have the somehow have the strength and wherewithal to come to court and testify and, Mm -hmm. you know, look that person in the eye. Um, you know, and, and, you know, time and time again, I'm, I'm flabbergasted with the, the strength that I've seen from women. Um, and, and, a lot of that is in the book because we deal with, you know, the murder of a a young girl. And then we also deal with uh, Carrie as the lead investigator, as an adult, what she has to go through, you know, primarily in a, in a men's world, which is what law enforcement is, you know, and not to, I don't consider the book political. Uh, I don't consider any of my work political. I just am telling a story that is true uh, as far as, as, as far as it seems to me, the character, it's true to the characters. It's true to the, the world, the way that I see it and the world then the way that I see it, <laughs> excuse me, is, uh, is difficult for women.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the things that has always amazed me uh, being a cop is that uh, like you talked about folks coming in and having to talk about the, the worst thing that's probably ever happened to them in their whole life. Right. And they're telling that to a complete stranger most sure. of the time. Sure. You know, it might have a relationship with the neighborhood cop, the guy that goes to the, you know, the neighborhood watch meetings, but the patrol guy that shows up to take their call, like is almost always going to be a total stranger. Yeah. And, and they've got to walk us through these horrors that they probably don't even want to talk to their family about. And it's an incredibly brief right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. and most, most of the crime victims that I ever helped, tried to help or took reports about were almost... I want to say, man, probably seventy-five percent women in different capacities.
1: Sure, it depends on what your your function is. I mean, sure, whatever whatever division you're assigned to, or whatever you know, specialty you have as an investigator, uh, will will dictate you know how often you run into this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm I'm probably in the same boat that you are. That's I would say that's probably in terms of victims of crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would say that's, that's probably a good number.
0: Now, you mentioned on that subject, you mentioned that at the back of an unsettled grave about some experience in homicide investigations, but you've left most of your career and resume off of the open source records. Would you mind giving us kind of a Reader's Digest rundown of your your experience as a cop?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. I, in 1997, uh, I worked as a part-time police officer in Jenkintown Borough, which is just outside of Philadelphia. Um, and when you're part-time, at least in in Pennsylvania, where I am, what that meant was they would pay you $10 an hour and work you like 60 hours a week to fill in <laughs> yes. what, whatever goofy shifts. You know, the guys that were full-time, because the guys that were full-time had all this time off that they could use. So they were working 12-hour shifts. Um, so, you know, I'd be running ragged just trying to make that $10 an hour with no benefits, no union protection. Um, I did that for three years. And then I was hired in Warrington uh, in the year 2000. And I've been there ever since. Um, I went into detectives very early. Uh, Warrington is, is, uh, it's a, it's a larger police department for the region that I'm in because the county that I work for, there are 52 separate police departments in one county.
0: Holy cow. Um,
1: Yeah. And and Pennsylvania, I think has more chiefs of police than any other state (laughs) because everything is broken into these tiny townships and boroughs. So, you know, even though we, (coughs) excuse me, even though we only have 30 some odd guys. We're still a big police department for our area because we're surrounded by other departments, you know, on all sides that have 20 guys here, 30 guys there, you know, that type. And it's like that throughout the entire County. Um, but where I'm going with that is we don't have, we're not large enough to have specialized investigative divisions. Um, so you won't have like a homicide detective and a, and a sex crimes uh, uh, detective. If you're a detective, you're, you're doing it all. And I've had some experience with, you know, pretty much everything. Um, The homicide reference that I make in the back of an unsettled grave was I had spent, um, (coughs) excuse me, I'm sorry about that. (coughs) I had spent uh, time in Baltimore homicide with uh, someone that I had met at training. Mm -hmm. His name was Dennis Raftery. um, And at the time he was a homicide detective and he was good enough to let me come down and do a ride along with him and spend time in the homicide division at Baltimore.
0: Man, that would just be an incredible incubator for how to be a good investigator.
1: They, that's they're the real deal. I mean, yeah. you know, any any large metropolitan uh, place that that has that type of activity and and has the demand for people that strictly focus on one type of investigation, mm-hmm. you're talking about the best of the best of the best, and that's what I saw down there. Now,
0: going back to the the writing and the craft and the the primary focus of what we're here to talk about today. Uh, when did you know that you wanted to write and who was the first person outside your family who wanted to come back for a second helping in your work?
1: Oof. Uh, well, I've been writing since I was a kid. Um, the very first thing that I remember writing was a sequel to West Side Story when I am probably about six years old. Um, it was called The Revenge of Tony because in my version, Tony came back and he, he kicked <laughs> the crap out of everybody that had, that had killed him. Um, as far as the first person outside of my family, you know, I relied on family uh, very early on. My my Aunt Donna and my Aunt Paula were both involved in uh, writing or editing or, you know, more of the educational aspect. And I began showing them my work uh, very early on. And they would do a lot of you know, very, very patient edits for me. And, you know, I really didn't deserve them because the stuff I gave them was absolute garbage. But they put me on the right path, you know.
0: Well, that's, uh, that's fantastic to have those early mentors in, in your life to, to you know, <coughs> cultivate that interest and, and steer you down the right road. Even if you can't see the destination from here, you're at least headed in the right direction on the roadmap.
1: Yeah, I'm forever grateful to them for that.
0: Uh, were, were you writing then pretty consistently before you ever became a cop?
1: Sure, yeah. And
0: when you showed up on day one, was that something the squad mates knew about or was that something you kept on the down low until you got to know somebody?
1: Uh, You know, I think they eventually figured it out. Um, But, you know, I I started so early. I'm I'm 44 years old. So before what had happened to me was um, in the interim between high school and and getting a police career, I was attempting to get published. I was attempting to Mm -hmm. write short stories. I was attempting to to get noticed somehow. But the way that it worked back then was it was all done through the mail. It was all done on paper. um, And I was so broke. Like I was working dead end jobs. Like I was working at a gas station. I was cleaning houses. I was doing just really menial labor and That's I could fine. hardly afford yeah. paper. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I would type on both sides of one page just to try to save money. Um, and it was like the biggest problem in the world when the, you could tell the ink cartridge in the typewriter was starting to run dry and yeah. I would lug this electric typewriter. It wasn't even a portable typewriter. It was just electric. So it was a little yeah, bit smaller. I would lug this thing. Yeah. I would lug it with me to, to like security jobs and other places. And I would write, and, you know, I remember I, I worked at a, as a security guard at a, a landfill in Hocken, and in the security shack, which was like the way station, rats would be running across the window right in front of me as I'm trying to type and I'm, you know, I'm writing on both sides of the, it was just awful, 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 awful. Oh my God. But you know, it, I was trying to get published and what you yeah. would have to do is finish something send it through the mail to one publication and hope that they would, they would uh, take it or even hope that they would get back to you and they would tell you like, you know, we'll get back to you in 60 to 90 days. Maybe if you don't hear from us, then feel free to submit it somewhere else, but we don't want you submitting to anyone else until you hear from us, mm-hmm. which is a nightmare. Yeah, because you're, if you're held hostage. Yeah, you're held hostage. So that my solution to that was just to write a lot and have multiple things on submission, multiple different places. Um, and I got a couple hits here and there, but we're talking really tiny, like Xeroxed, what they called zines at the time, which were just like, yeah. <laughs> like Xerox pieces of paper that stapled together that they gave to like 20 people in Minnesota. And those 20 <laughs> people were other authors who wanted to get published. So they subscribed to the mag- to the zine. Right. Um, and it just wasn't going anywhere and, and I wasn't getting any traction. And that's how I wound up saying, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll go for the police career but I continued to write uh, during the early stages of that as well, but really just to myself at that point or for myself at that point until uh, the digital publishing revolution.
0: Yeah, and that seemed to have made a <coughs> tremendous difference for a whole lot of guys, uh, especially in those early days when yeah. uh, you know, that was all new and shiny and fantastic and all, nobody else was doing it. So it was you know, literally the traditional publishing houses and a few dudes.
1: Yeah. I wasn't quite one of the original few dudes. I came in a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, probably like the last of the new dudes or the very first of the like, next generation of dudes.
0: Yeah. The, the tip of the spear in the second wave there. That was more of the second wave, I think. Now, in reading through the, the, uh, an unsettled grave, it really made me want to get your point of view on point of view. Do you deliberately write in a specific voice or do the characters work that out for you as you're making their acquaintance?
1: Uh, no, let's, let's see. The characters in my work make their voice best known through dialogue. Um, they have very specific voices uh, that, that ring very clear to me as I'm writing them in terms of uh, overall narration. That's generally in, you know, my voice, uh, or at least the voice that I want people to to hear as they're reading. Um, but I think there's a, a, a clear distinction between them, at least to me.
0: Now, one of the primary focuses of this podcast, or at least the recurring theme is that it, it takes about a, for most folks, about a decade of consistent, deliberate blood, sweat, and tears to become, you know, an overnight success. And you've talked a lot about how, that journey's been for you? Where do you feel like you are in that, that process?
1: Hmm. You know, I don't really think that way. I, I think uh, more along the lines of, uh, I'm the same thing I've always been. I'm a writer. And I'm the same thing I always will be, which is a writer. And my only goal is to get better each time. So uh, The Thief of All Light was the finest novel that I was capable of writing when I wrote it. And then when it came time to do An Unsettled Grave, um, I, I had spoken to a, a friend of mine. And his name is John Gilstrap. And he's a, he's a pretty successful author with, uh, with Kensington as well. And I had John and I like to hang out at the bar during writers' conferences. And I had said to him, you know, what's the secret to writing a series? Because I, I've never really been faced with this before where someone wants something from me right away and I have to produce. Mm-hmm. I've written series before, but it, were, it was on my own terms. And John said, really, the only thing you need to worry about is getting it in on time and making sure it is better than the last book. And I said, (laughs) no. That's it, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, I just wrote the greatest book I could possibly write. Like, I put everything I had into it. And he goes, well, do the next one better. I thought, uh (laughs) Um, uh-oh. But through the process of that, I found that I could get better and I could improve yeah. and I, and I wound up trying things that I hadn't done before. Um, and, and, uh, blood angel is, is the next step beyond that. I feel like I've even surpassed, uh, whatever we accomplished in an unsettled grave and I'm very proud of an unsettled grave. Um, but that's, that is my goal and it will continue to be is I want to get better every time.
0: Yeah. And I've tried with, with every publication to do exactly that. And for me, I I very firmly believe Hemingway had it right when he said that writing is never finished. It's only ever abandoned. And um, for me, because I work so deliberately on improving my craft and improving each subsequent book, I'm really tempted sometimes to go back to my first works and, and tinker with the editing and, you know, Make it a little bit more polished, and it's really hard for me to for me to resist that. Um, you know, it.
1: I, I it's a bit of a struggle, I guess. Well, let me help you with that. <laughs> Shoot, don't do it. Um, and the reason I tell you not to do it is the same reason that I would tell myself, like, don't date that ex girlfriend. Um, <laughs> there's Perfect. nothing new there for you. Mm. You're better off creating something new.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think the one of the most consistent pieces of advice you hear throughout the the writing and publishing world, right, is that nothing sells this book like your next book. And, sure. you know, sure. on the one hand, I I feel like folks who are reading the new books, if they go back to the first one, they're going to see, a, you know, some some difference in the writing. And I, I don't want that. But also, I've got a whole bunch more stories I want to get out. And that's I think that's much more tempting.
1: Yeah, I, I deal with the same thing. I have a book review club on Facebook um, with like, like 260 some odd uh, people that are on there. And they'll ask me a lot of times about um, my older work. And I try to explain to them, listen, <coughs> excuse me, I, do them, I did them when I was an independent author. And, you know, I didn't have the editing oversight. I didn't have um, the team in place that I have for my later stuff. So it's going to be different it's it, what I explained it in. is it's the equivalent of, uh, take a rock band and mm-hmm. you, you're listening to their early garage demos and there's stuff there that you can listen to and enjoy, but it's not going to be what you hear them doing later on. Yeah. Um, you know, but for fans that enjoy it. So I, what I do is I keep the prices real low on my independent stuff. Um, and I'm, i try. I tend to be very honest with people, you know, that, that, these were things that I wrote, you know, a while back independently on my own. Um and and am I proud of them? Sure. Do I love them? Yes. Uh is it a good a good reflection of where I am now in terms of my craft? No, of course not.
0: Yeah, the the, the first you know, table I ever built is not nearly as nice as the last one I constructed, you know. Sure. It's all all a, a an escalating skill set. Yeah. Now, beyond your writing your family and the job what what are you passionate about? What else gets you out of the bed moving and uh moving with a purpose these days?
1: Uh, well, you said family right yep you said, <laughs> you said I think family and writing pretty much covers it. that's all I do
0: yeah how uh what's your writing schedule like then? Are you pretty much consistently writing when you're not at work
1: yeah yeah i i it sounds funny, but I basically live like a monk. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I, what happened to me was when I got the deal with Kensington, I, I, <laughs> when I got the deal with Kensington, I basically eliminated uh, all other distractions from my life. I had a relationship that I was in and I ended that. Um, I had some other things going on and I, I ended all of them because I, I don't know how many chances a person gets to you know, get a publishing contract with a large publisher and and achieve something that they've been working for, for a long time. But to me, it felt like something I didn't want to take any chances with. So aside from, you know, spending time with the kids and I'm very fortunate that the things that I like to do, my kids like to do also. Oh, that's a
0: blessing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, even though I've been doing all this and, and I spend a lot of time when I'm not with them completely alone in writing, um, we go to New York comic-con, we go to bookstores, we go to the movies all the time. We go, you know, to, to museums, all the things that I really enjoy, they really enjoy. So, you know, it's just a matter of spending. And I have them a lot too. So, you know, we, we share, uh, we share custody and, you know, it's, it's pretty convenient.
0: Now, I would expect then also as a pretty ferocious writer that you're also probably a pretty ferocious reader. Do you have a
1: favored fictional
0: detective in books, TV or film?
1: Hmm. You know, to be honest with you, I don't really read a lot of crime fiction. Um, I don't really read a lot of uh, current fiction. I I have a long list of books uh, of things that have been like cornerstones throughout the years that I, I try to get to. Um, you know, I just to, to give you an example, I just finished Salem's Lot for the first wow. time and had been trying to read it off and on here and there, but I finally buckled down and I finished it. Three months ago, I finally finished Lonesome Dove, which I had never read before. Wow, um, that's, that's an incredible story, incredible story. Uh, yeah. Sure. So things of that nature, yeah. you know, I, 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 you know not, to, not to take any shots at crime fiction or, or thriller fiction, um, but what I'm really looking for are, the masters of the craft, not necessarily a good story because I'm trying to study and I'm trying to learn. Um, yeah. But to answer your question, as far as a favorite detective of all time uh, in terms of fiction, um, you know, I love the first couple seasons of NYPD blue. Um, yeah. I loved uh, David Caruso's character and I love uh, the Andy Sipowitz character. Yep, um, I thought they were great. And, and, Felt true to me when I watched them. Uh, I haven't watched it in a little while, but they'd probably be my favorite. Watching those two together uh, was great.
0: Yeah. And on TV for me, the, uh, the Southland series that it didn't have all that long a run, but you know, for working out West that, that felt very authentic to me. It was pretty similar to, you know, going to the day job.
1: There was a Steven Botchko series too, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember, I remember watching that when it came out. I enjoyed that also
0: yeah you know it's uh probably did the best job I thought of depicting like the th- the the real three dimensional lives of these cops that you know they've yeah. got the same problems the same bills the same you know occasional drug addiction like you know it was uh it was pretty real yeah now from a a writer's perspective and as somebody who's a working cop, what do you wish that writers would get right more consistently when they're writing cops crimes and criminals?
1: I think there is a phenomenon in books and also in TV and and movies. Um, We all know what the CSI effect is, right? But in fiction, I think it's a little bit worse because there there's no constraints in terms of budget and having to build build these things. And, you know, I I sit there and I kind of shake my head when the investigator finds a grain of sand on the floor. (laughs) <laughs> and that I was able to have that grain of sand analyzed at the quote unquote lab. And yeah. the lab will tell them this grain of sand came from Bermuda. So your bad guy must be, you know, and, and it just, you know, whatever. Yeah. People have these, these wild misconceptions of, of how things work and, and that's fine, but it would be good. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to write in the genre, at least take the time to ask somebody, Hey, is this possible? I like to tell people the detectives in my stories get exactly what I would get on an investigation. Mm-hmm. They get like a flashlight that doesn't work, a wet notebook, <laughs> an uncooperative uh, victim yeah. and basically getting told like, Hey, go, go solve this and figure out what's going on before we run into overtime. So,
0: yeah. And that, that was one of the things that was kind of a, a- a big slap in the face to me, not, not to me personally, but I guess a, a biggest surprise for me in going from the, uh, the theoretical, I want to be a cop in the Academy to actually being a cop out on the streets. Right. Was the business of law enforcement is absolutely depressing with dealing with budgets and having to deal with, you know, whether or not stuff's going to get submitted to the crime lab, because, you know, we, can we pay for it? Can we, you know, do we have a reliable or possible suspect? Like, you know, I, really thought we were going to be able to put, you know, every case uh, on the front burner and run it until the wheels fell off. And it just isn't <laughs> yeah. the case. No.
1: And a lot of the, the issues with law enforcement come from the fact that we're, we don't make money at it. You know, we use public money. And, you know, when you use the public's money, they might care a lot about the case that's right in front of them, but, not so much about the one from yesterday or the day before or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just, that just tends to be the case in terms of public awareness. Um, When something is, let me give you an example. Okay. In Philly, what you'll see is people will call and complain about, let's say prostitutes in the neighborhood, right? So the police or drug dealers in the neighborhood and the police will flood the neighborhood and overtime is not an issue because we're going to take care of this problem in this neighborhood right now. So tons of cops, tons of overtime, tons of money, tons of arrests are being made. Yep. And what's happening is- Lots of activity. Moving, yeah, a lot of activity. But all you're doing is moving the crime to another neighborhood who is yeah. now going to start complaining later on down the road. And the other thing you're doing is you're filling up the court with all these cases that are now going to tie up all sorts of resources doing that. And now the cops are getting even more overtime because now they're all going to court. And the problem's already over right? The problems, the neighbors aren't complaining anymore. All the drug dealers are gone. But now the department's looking at the budget going, whoa, why are we spending all this money for something that's not even a problem anymore? You know? Yeah. And meanwhile, we have the problems over in this other neighborhood. I wonder where they came from. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All, the, all these new guys showing up. Where they- right.
1: Yeah. yeah. The ones who yeah. just moved over a block. Yeah. Yeah. We got to so-
0: push them back home. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about it, it's like there's a, there's a logical reason why things are so screwed up. But if anybody ever tried to fix them, it's like the world would stop spinning.
0: Yeah, uh, one of the one of the other things that I I think um, people miss a lot when they're when they're writing is uh, this this reality. This is a, a little bit of a, a diatribe here, but when when I worked patrol, I pretty routinely led my squad in in domestic violence arrests and case filings and. I think the last quarter I pushed a black and white around uh, Arizona summers. I, I think I had like 53 DV arrests that quarter. I, I, I've got a, a, a passion for those kind of cases and, and those victims. And one of my early DV cases um, was actually the first time that I ended up butting up against the criminal justice machine. The, uh, the, the short story is that I caught this case in my beat where a woman called 911 after her boyfriend had beaten and strangled her. He... actually cut off her airflow until she lost consciousness. And when she came to, he's gone. She calls us. I showed up a couple other guys there, take her statement, get medical photos, the whole nine. And she gave this terrific statement about how she feared for her life, how he was yelling shit like, bitch, I'm going to kill you all all of it. Mm -hmm. And where I worked, it was pretty normal for patrol cops to, to run things down to the logical end. If the radio wasn't holding us hostage. So. We went out and we picked this mope up, booked him in for attempted homicide, filed the case with CID before the end of the overnight shift. And I, I went home, went to bed, came back, and the whole thing had fallen to shit. And the, uh, what had happened is the detectives were upset at me because the DA was upset at them because the DA didn't get a phone call to the on-call attorney that somebody was getting booked on attempted homicide charges overnight, which is a a PR thing for them. And then in the meantime, I've only been in bed a few hours, right? Right. In the meantime, the victim has already recanted her statement, said (laughs) that she lied, right. That they were having rough consensual sex and she was pissed at him. Right. You know, it uh, was the first time that I I really remember being disenchanted with that, that whole process. Um, for all of that long story, just to ask this one question: Do you have a similar experience? Do you remember the first time that, that you came up against the criminal justice machine?
1: Oof. I couldn't even tell you the first time. Um, it, it's just something that you're continuously dealing with, you know. And, and there's so many there's so many facets to the criminal justice machine, as it were. You know, between the courts and the corrections department and, and law enforcement and, you know, the, the victims and witness assistants and the victims themselves, you know, it, it, it's, it's amazing the entire, that anything gets done because there's so many different moving parts moving at the same time. Um, you know, I think one of the things you gain from experience is one of the hardest things to maintain during a police career is you have to keep your level of commitment high, but you have to keep your level of expectation real low. (laughs) um, Yes. Which is really difficult to maintain that balance. You know, when people, when people come to you for help as, as, as a cop, um, you know, they're not, they're coming to you, you have to assume with uh, an open heart and they really need help, and they're relying on you at some point. they may change their mind. The other person may apologize, they may buy them flowers, they may you know uh, forget what they were angry about. You may not have gotten the full story, but you know if you approach each victim um, as a new experience mm-hmm. and you do what you can then you'll never go wrong. Um, and it's it's not on you uh, or anyone else, you know, if that person changes their mind or the system falls through or the charges just aren't met. Um, I think one of the worst mistakes that I, I see cops make is they get personally invested in seeing a specific charge filed or seeing yes. a specific um, outcome. Yep. and. What you gain, um, what I've certainly gained as as a detective, is uh, you know to be able to say to people, listen, you know, it's not necessarily what we ch- like. It, you don't get anything extra if I charge that person with aggravated assault or mm-hmm. attempted homicide or you know attempted this or that or whatever. There's, it's, I don't get. It's not like I get a bonus in my check because I arrested somebody for a larger crime. Right. What I'd rather do is charge them for the one thing that I know that I can convict them on and base my entire investigation around that and hand that to the defense attorney and say, deal with that. Yeah. Right. Good deal, with, deal with the one count of burglary that I just gave your client for the 30 jobs that I'm looking at them for. And, you know, to me, that's, that's not a bad perspective. It is something that, that I can live with. Um, knowing that they are going to take the full ride on that one solid charge or those several solid charges, as opposed to just you know a bunch of arbitrary ones that I threw onto the page because I, I thought it made me look cool that I charged somebody with twenty different things.
0: Now, out of respect for times, I can always you know talk to talk to cops for hours. I, I, I miss being around the squad rooms, but I, one of the last questions I always ask the cops that come on this show, Bernard. God forbid it should come to pass, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, <laughs> what, what fictional investigator, assassin, or maybe even a revenge artist would you want work in your case? You can pick anybody. It's, it's your homicide. Huh.
1: Wow. Um, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I would want somebody completely ruthless who doesn't play by the rules <laughs> that, is, that is just going to deal with the problem and not necessarily have to not, you know who I'd want. I'd want, um, the Denzel Washington character from man on fire. Oh my One, God. Little, yeah. little girl. No, yep. you know, even if the guy doesn't get arrested, he's going to get what's coming to him. So yeah. Yeah.
0: The, 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 most popular answer of late has been some kind of task force with a, a legitimate investigator and somebody like a Mitch Rapp, who's going to make sure it happens <laughs> or a Jack Reacher. Yeah. 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 I'm going to have to yeah, look at the character's name, man on fire. I think fire. Creasy. I think, is it Creasy? I think it's yes. Creasy. Yeah. That's yeah. at least what the kid calls him. Yeah. Right. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. That's who I'm sending. Hey, I, I think Take you're going to be, Jack Reacher. You're going to be avenged brother. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I, I choose vengeance over
0: prosecution. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I've I've seen how the prosecution side works. I'll take vengeance. Right. Yeah. So, where can readers connect with you? Find your works. Maybe get updates on uh, upcoming releases.
1: I'm all over the place. Uh, if they just look at my name, Bernard Schaefer, on Google, they'll see you know, my website, bernardschaefer.com. dot com. Find me on Twitter at bernard schaefer. Facebook, Bernard Schaefer, author. Um, I'm real easy to find. Um. Or they can just look up the books, uh, you know, An Unsettled Grave or The Thief of All Light and find me that way.
0: Well, I greatly appreciate you making time to be here, boss. It's uh, it's
1: an experience, man. Thank you so much, Gavin. I really appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been veteran cop and international bestseller Bernard Schaefer. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.